As we gather here this resurrection morning, I want to begin by asking you to listen, just to be really quiet for a moment and to listen. Do you hear it? Can you hear it? If you listen really closely, you can hear it. What you can hear is the low rumblings of change. We find ourselves in the second decade of the 21st century. And the old foundations are crumbling. Those things in which people once found great support, great comfort, are shaking, crumbling. Ideas like the government will take care of you. The school is the place people go for an education. The technology will save us. That the future will be just like the past. The news media is fair and unbiased. That a slice of the American economic pie is available to everyone. The foundations are shaking. And the result of this is a growing sense of uneasiness, a desire in our society for something real, something permanent, something that will hold like an anchor in the face of life's travails. This same spirit of discontentedness and hunger for truth gripped the world of the first century as well. Even though on the surface things looked good, deep down inside there were rumblings. The ancient philosophies no longer satisfied. The old gods of paganism had left people wanting. By God's design, there was, a, there was a growing hunger for truth in the world. And into this world of agnosticism and cynicism went the apostles of Jesus Christ with the most amazing message. What man could not do, 
God did for us. We could never reach to him, and he reached down to us. The person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, very God. Second person of the triune God had stepped into space and time, took to himself genuine humanity, and lived among us the life that we could never, ever live, and died on our behalf the death that we so justly deserve. But it didn't end there. It didn't end there because the the grave could not hold him. He, He burst the bonds of sin and death. His righteous life overcame the grave and he was raised from the dead on the third day and he lives forevermore and he throws open heaven's gates to all who will have him by faith. This is the message of Easter. This is the good news of the resurrection. And it was into the world that was desperate to hear good news that those early disciples went. Open your Bibles to the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, Luke's account of the first 30 years of the Christian church. Our text this morning will be verses 22 through 31. After the persecution had threatened his life and shortened his ministry in Thessalonica and Berea, the apostle Paul was sent by the brethren, we're told here, sent by the brethren 200 miles to the south to the city of Athens to wait there for his ministry companions, Silas and Timothy, to catch up with him. While there, the Apostle Paul wandered around the city of Athens, and he he took in the sights and the sounds of that ancient city, that cradle of democracy, the very birthplace of Greek philosophy, the city who counted among its luminaries Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno, And yet they're all dead. They all lay in their graves, some for centuries. Athens was still considered at that time in the ancient world the the center of the intellectual world. But the city was empty, it was hollow. It was living on its past glories. One writer says it was an empty place living on the memory of her glorious past. The Apostle Paul wandered through that city, 
surrounded by what today are considered works of art. But he was neither impressed with the sculpture nor cowered by the philosophy that prevailed in that place. Athens was a city of idols. In fact, one writer writing a few decades following the events narrated here says that a, that a person who visited Athens was more likely to meet a god or a goddess on the main street than they were a man. It's because the population of the city at this time was about 10,000. But there were an estimated 30,000 statues of various gods and goddesses. Athens was gripped with the dark bondage of pagan spirituality, and the apostle Paul was so provoked by it that he could not be quiet. He was compelled to speak into it. Couldn't contain himself. So therefore, as he was waiting on Silas and Timothy to catch up with him, he found himself going day by day into the marketplace and, and dialoguing with the people, speaking to them about Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and raising quite a furor among the people. In fact, he caused enough sensation there that the leaders of the community, the, the, the luminaries, the city fathers, demanded that he appear before them and explain what he was speaking about. Explain this strange teaching to us. Listen how Luke narrates this, beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Luke's comment here. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. So there Paul stood. Before the intelligentsia of his day, the best and the brightest, how would he address them? What would he say? In verses 22 through 31, 
Luke gives us an abbreviated account of Paul's address. It's a true account, but you don't think it's a comprehensive account. But in this account given here, we can find the outline of Paul's message. We can find the the three main points that he makes there as he addresses the best and the brightest of Greek philosophy. And as he makes these three points, he he makes them with the design to, to draw his hearers to a decision. He is to bring them to a point of decision. A decision regarding their standing before the one true God. Let's trace his sermon this morning, huh? Point number one, man is inherently religious. Man is inherently religious. Verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Luke tells us that Paul stood here in the midst of the Areopagus to address the the leadership of the city of Athens. This word, Areopagus, uh, means the hill of Ares, who was the the Greek god of war. Sometimes it's known as Mars Hill, for that was the Roman equivalent, Mars, the Roman god of war. And it was This hill, the the Areopagus, this this hill of Ares that centuries before the city council would gather at to to decide the matters of pressing concern to the ancient city-state of Athens. By the time Paul appears here, the word Areopagus had come to stand in for the city council itself. Notice he says he stood in the midst of the Areopagus, not on the Areopagus. In other words, Paul stood in the midst of the city council. That same council that four centuries earlier had condemned Socrates to death because he had been corrupting the youth by by introducing strange religious teachings. There in that sitting, among the best and the brightest, Paul was called upon to explain his gospel message. So he began his dress by pointing out the obvious that the Athenians had no lack of religious devotion. In fact, they they worshipped everything, including an unknown God. 
Historians tell us that the likelihood here is because of the many, many, many idols that had been erected throughout the centuries in Athens, that it was inevitable with the passage of time that they would fall into disrepair, that the sands of time, as it were, would, would wear them down, eventually actually eroding the very inscriptions upon them. Rather than demolish them, they would refurbish them and rededicate them, but not knowing whom they had originally been dedicated to, they would dedicate them to an unknown God. Beloved, the Athenians, the Athenians worshipped what they did not know, but assumed they knew enough to determine the appropriate means of worship. To this group of highly educated, philosophically trained, socially and materially prosperous people, the Apostle Paul boldly confronts and challenges them and begins to make known to them the one true God. Beloved people want a God they can control. People want a God they can control. They want someone or something that will ease life's troubles. Someone or something that will at least temporarily soothe their conscience. When you boil down the world's religions to their basic elements, their essence, What you find is that their gods are merely images of men and worship is but a process of buying their favor. Now we live in a secular world. We live in a postmodern world. We live in a world in which the idea of, of idol worship seems bizarre. But that is merely because we have substituted idols. We now worship at the idol of science and materialism. Even the atheists themselves worships. They worship themselves. They are, in their own minds, the ultimate authority and arbiter of truth. Man is inherently religious. Remember, remember, this is Athens. This is the city that had produced the greatest philosophers of human history. No one has supplanted them to this day. These people were not unintelligent. They were not uneducated. They were not primitive. But they were lost. They were very lost. Man is inherently religious. Paul moves on 
with his second point. And that is that God is inexcusably obvious. God is inexcusably obvious. He launches now really into the, to the main point of his message here, and it is designed to lift the veil of ignorance from the eyes of the Athenians. And he does so by, by declaring two ways, essentially, two ways that, that God is inexcusably obvious to anyone who will look. Paul takes up the realm of creation and humanity. Creation and humanity. And, and through the realm of creation and humanity, Paul begins to show the inexcusable obviousness of the one true God. God is obvious through observing creation. Verse 24. Paul says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Paul's point is simply this. Because God is creator, he is obviously greater than his creation. And because he is greater than his creation, he is thus not dependent upon his creation to meet any imaginary needs. In fact, the very idea that God is somehow dependent upon his own creation is the denial of what it means to be God. It is denial of the very essence of God himself. Now, God may well command the building of a temple as he did in the Old Testament. God may well prescribe a sacrificial system as he did in the Old Testament. But that is for our benefit, not his. It is for our benefit, not his. The reality that God is not dependent upon his own creation, it should be obvious to anyone who seriously considers the implications of creation. God doesn't need us. He does not need us, but we desperately need him. God himself voices the reality in Psalm 50, where he says, beginning in verse 9, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. But the world is mine and all it contains. The doctrine of creation 
makes God obvious. Paul moves from statements about creation in general to to statements about God's highest creation in particular, and that is mankind, humanity. As F.F. Bruce records, the creator of all things in general is the creator of the human race in particular. So God is obvious through the observation of humanity. He is obvious through the observation of humanity. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. So many amazing realities that that Paul highlights here in just these couple of short sentences. All of which, upon a serious and thoughtful reflection, should lead a person to seek after the God who is behind it all. For example... Paul points out the unity of the human race. The unity of the human race. I mean, humans are spread out all over the globe, and yet they display an amazingly unified genetic structure. And this is what one should expect having all descended from that first. Pair, Adam and Eve. I mean, we observe the, the small surface differences, right? Color of hair, color of eyes, tone of the skin, texture of the hair. These are small. The reality of the matter is there is this amazing coherence within the human genetic structure. This, my friends, is, is, an expo- is only explained by the creator himself, God, who brought humanity into existence. It's patently obvious, if one will but look. Beyond that, Paul points out the, the providential disbursement of people groups. Verse 26, right, he made from one man every nation to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Hmm. 
Question for you this morning. What or who determined the place of your birth? What or who determined the place of your birth? Now, if your answer to me is my parents, then all you are doing is merely avoiding the question and failing to think seriously about it. If you examine your family history, you will find that it is made up of a complicated series of events and decisions that have brought you exactly to the place you are and made you who you are. Why were you born where you were born? It is this amazingly complicated series of decisions and events that demonstrate the God behind it all. They are the providential hand of God. The great King Solomon Reflecting on this reality, he writes in Proverbs 16 and verse 9, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. If you are here this morning, you are here by the providential hand of God. You are here to hear a message from God. The unity of the human race, the the providential disbursement of people groups. Third, the history of world empires. The history of world empires. If you think about the history of the world and the various empires that have dominated, it's fascinating. And what is most fascinating about it, I think, for me, is how small, tiny, and insignificant each of these former world empires now are. In a moment, I will recount them for you, and and you almost have to pinch yourself and say, are you kidding me? That country once ruled the world? Yes. Yes. You go back 2,700 years and you arrive at the empire of Egypt. Egypt. It dominated the world. What is Egypt today? Hmm? Following Egypt, we have the empire of Assyria. Essentially, what is now modern Iraq and, and modern Syria together That once ruled the world. Are you kidding me? Bunch of desert. They were followed by the empire of Babylon, modern day Iraq, who were followed by Medo Persia, 
modern-day Iran, who were defeated and followed by Greece, that bankrupt little nation. How about Rome and Italy? Spain, Portugal, France, England, and America. We would be foolish to believe that our future will be any different than all who have gone before us. The 20th century was the American century, my friends. The 21st century may well belong to China. Beloved empires come and they go. They arrive on the world stage for a time, and then they pass. Why? Why is it? Why? It is more than a random series of events. In fact, the more closely one studies world history and the history of empires, the more one becomes convinced that there is an invisible hand behind it all. In the 8th century B.C., prophet Daniel says exactly that, where he writes in chapter 4 and in verse 25, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Why do empires rise and fall? It is because of God who sets them up and takes them down again. And a serious contemplation of that reality should draw us to him. He is bigger, bigger than any world empire. Fourth, we have the Omega, the, <laughs> the Omega Day. The image of God, the very image of God. Paul alludes to it here. Verse 29, being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an object formed by the art and thought of man. We, as children of God, and we are children of God, as Paul is speaking here in the sense that that God is our creator, bear the image of our God, the Imago Dei. Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image. We alone of all the creatures... Possess the capacity for reason, 
for speech, for abstract thinking, for universal invariant moral law, for a conscience, for the desire to worship. They're made in the image of God. These, among others, stamp us as bearing God's image. And as image bearers, we have an intrinsic dignity, an intrinsic dignity. So when man attempts to to reduce God to an idol, whether it be a crude stone statue or, or a sophisticated philosophical system, It is both degrading to humanity and insulting to God. Beloved, when we think seriously on these things, a serious contemplation of the realities that Paul merely highlights here should bring each and every individual into a genuine search for God, the one true God. And a failure to do so results in a culpable ignorance. A culpable ignorance. In order to avoid God, we must actively seek to suppress the truth about him. He is everywhere screaming at us, both externally and internally. And in order to avoid that reality, we have to work hard. The knowledge of God is clear, the knowledge of God is available, and the knowledge of God is understood by those who have been made in his image. The Apostle Paul speaks of this same reality over in his letter to the church at Rome, right? In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Where there, he writes, the wrath, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They hold it down. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Beloved, man is inherently religious. Secondly, God is inexcusably obvious. And this brings us really to the, to the final point of Paul's message here before the Areopagus. Judgment is inescapably serious. Given the first two, judgment is inescapably serious. 
Notice in verse 30, Paul begins, therefore, in other words, he's drawing a conclusion in light of this reality that I have spoken of ever so briefly. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Any speaker worth their salt can read their audience, can look at the, their faces, can sort of determine their, their endurance level. When is it time to, to land the airplane? When do I bring this thing to a conclusion? Now is the time. It's the time for Paul. So as he draws his message to a close here, notice what he does. He presses home the point to which he has been driving. Men and women must repent. They must repent. They must turn away from their culpable ignorance. A culpable ignorance that is expressed in their pursuit of idolatry. It is time to put the idols away. And to turn from your idolatry and turn to the one and true and living God. What if somebody protests? What if somebody says that they didn't know? I didn't know. You, you say I'm culpably ignorant, but, but I didn't know. I acted in innocence of God's commands. Paul's answer to such an individual here is that your days of ignorance are over. You cannot hide there any longer. Now is the time to act. Today is the day of salvation. Why? Why now? Why is it all changed now? What has changed? Everything has changed. And everything has changed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changes everything. Everything. And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that has produced the inescapably serious consequences that face every single man and woman and boy and girl. What are those serious consequences? Look at verse 31. He will judge the world in righteousness. 
He will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, he will judge the world according to his standard of righteousness. Not according to mine. Not according to yours. Not as you might compare to the person that you would like to pick out to be compared to. I mean, I'm not as bad as that guy. But that guy is not your standard. That guy is not your judge. Beloved, inherent in the reality of the Creator is the terrifying understanding that your Creator is your judge. Your Creator is your judge. And the clearest proof that Jesus is the one through whom that judgment is coming is his resurrection. That's what Paul says. The authority to judge is the authority to save. That's why you gotta deal with Jesus. For you will face him as either your judge or your savior. But you must deal with him. Why? Because God has raised him from the dead. Because God has raised him from the dead. Jesus claimed authority had been given to him by his father, thus claiming himself equal with his father. Listen to his claim. John 5, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus has life in himself. In other words, that he is the dispenser of life. and the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus himself said in the night in which he was betrayed, there in the upper room among his disciples in John 14 and verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But through me. And then in Mark 9 and verse 31, he made the most audacious prediction recorded here, but spoken in multiple places and in multiple times where Jesus said, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Listen, you might predict your death and you might somehow possibly coincidentally get it right. But no one can reliably predict to be brought from the grave. This is a stunning claim. A stunning claim. 
And the resurrection validates it. And in validating that claim, it validates all his other claims. Jesus said, I am your judge. I hold the keys to life and death, heaven and hell. And I will rise from the dead to prove it. Oh, beloved, the the church loves Easter. We love this glorious day, don't we not? For without this day, everything we believe, all that we proclaim, would be built upon a flimsy foundation of human thought and reasoning. But Jesus is alive. He is alive. And he lives forevermore. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death. And he throws open wide the kingdom of God. And he offers to any who will receive him by faith. Who will count his life as the life we could not live. And the death he died is the death we deserve. His resurrection life, restoration to the Father, opening the the gateway to God. This is life. Paul confronts his hearers here with the same reality, beloved, that confronts you right here this morning. We are at the right, the exact same place. What will you do with the message of Easter? What will you do? Will you press into it? Will you pursue the salvation that only Jesus offers? Will you tune it out, push it aside for another year, decide to go your own way? No, I just as soon stay culpably ignorant. Thank you very much. We know how the Athenians responded, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Tell it to me again another time someday. We know how they responded. The question now is, how will you respond? What will be your response today? May God open blind eyes to the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, the Apostle Paul, in the power of your spirit, armed with your word, and a boldness that defies human explanation, stood there in the Areopagus and spoke 
of the resurrection of Christ. He spoke truth to power. He was not cowed. He was not impressed with worldly achievement. But in humility and directness and boldness and tenderness, he called the Athenians to repentance. Our Father, this morning, through the message of the Apostle Paul, as recorded for us here in Holy Scripture, we too have, as it were, heard that same message. We too have been called to account. What will we do with the resurrection of Christ? Our Father, I know this morning there are those who are here who are culpably ignorant, who have stiff-armed the truth, some for years. I pray that even now in this place and at this time, that you would open their eyes, that you would enable them to repent and to turn to flee from the folly of their own self-constructed idolatry. Flee to Christ. O Lord, may they see him and believe in him and embrace him as their Savior. Or if they don't, they will most assuredly face him as their judge. Hoshana, save God, save us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.